Amen. I agree with that. You excited to be together this morning? Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we're going to start. And uh, as you see the chapters we're going to cover, you might think we're going to be here a few days. I promise we will get out uh, today, sometime. So, um, no, we're going we're gonna to touch on a few pieces of those chapters um, and look at a theme that we see in the life of David, one that um, applies, I, I think, greatly to our lives today um, as well. As I was thinking about this passage, I, um, I was reminded of, of one of the sort of definitive turning points in my life. Uh, my family had grown up in um, Orange County, um, California, and my dad's office had closed there. And so uh, we were moving from um, Orange County to Aurora, Colorado. Now, um, that Saudi Aurora, that's a little bit uh, of a change, just a little bit. Um, and my family was really involved in the church that we went to um, in Irvine. And so um, they had this big send off. And um, my dad's band, he was in this like contemporary, quote unquote, worship band that played. Um, and, and we had this um, awesome, so my 11 year old mind remembers it, awesome concert where my dad just rocked Carmen's Radically Saved like it was the last time he was ever going to be in front of a microphone. I mean, it was just great. Um, at the very end of the night, where all of our friends are around us, over the speakers they put on um, a little song by Michael W. Smith called Friends. You remember this song? And, and the chorus is, And friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never. Because the welcome, well, you know, you know the song probably. Um, if you don't, go home and YouTube it for a good laugh. Um, the welcome will not end because a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. And I can remember holding the hands of my friends and crying violently as an 11-year-old boy. You know, I'm just thinking, it's not too long to live as friends, you know, but I'm never going to see you again. And my lips quivering and uh, my body shaking. And it was this like moment that's just burned into my memory. And, and in my little 11-year-old mind, here's what I knew somewhere deep down is that my life was going to change. Not just because... We were moving a thousand miles away to Aurora, Colorado, but because the people in my life were going to be different. The people in my life were going to be different. And, and I think somewhere deep down, I knew that, that the friendships that we make and the people that we're surrounded with in many ways shape the course of our life. And because the people that I was surrounded with were different, the direction of my life would be different, not outside of the direction sovereign hand of god but that it was just going to be different um andy stanley the great pastor he, he makes a similar point when he says that friendships determine the direction and quality of our lives friendships determine the direction and the quality of our lives and friendship is just a a human sort of DNA need within every single one of us. That's why um, social networking is just sort of, it has taken off over the last, what, five, six, seven years. I mean, you, you, they have this thing on uh, Facebook where you can friend request somebody. Will you be my friend? And the digital world proves that we are a people. As a, as a human race, we are hungry for friendships. Now, 
I'm going to show my hand a little bit. I, I, I do, I love social networking, but I think it's sort of, um, it has shallowed friendship in, in addition to spreading it wider. I think we are overconnected and under, um, or, and incredibly shallow. I think we have a lot of connections and very few real, true friendships. And friendship is something that we all long for. And we're going to see it in the life of David. But I think we long for it because of a sort of core DNA piece that God has placed inside every one of us. Sorry, will you go back one slide for me? And it's this. It's that um, we're going to see in this passage today that God's blessings are often confirmed and carried by God's people. And that's the, that's the reason that God designed us for friendship. That's the reason that he wired this into our being is because he never intended to just bless you, just you, but he intended to bless you through people that you might be a blessing to other people. They might be a blessing to other people. And so oftentimes the way that God's hand is on you, the way that his promises are sustained within you is by people that he brings to come alongside of you and to walk with you through the joys and through the pains of life. And we're going to see that in the life of David. You see, I sort of have a a sub-thesis this morning, and it's this, that if there were no Jonathan, there would be no David. That if Jonathan hadn't come into David's life, then David, as we know him, man after God's own heart, great king of Israel, would cease to exist in the history books. That I think Jonathan was one of the sustaining, one of the carrying pieces of God's covenantal promise that he made to David. That one of the ways God brought that to fruition is through bringing him Jonathan. To be a comfort, to be an encouragement, to be an inspiration. And that's often the way God uses people in your life as well. And it's the way that he uses you in the lives of other people. He uses you as an encouragement. He uses you as an inspiration. He uses you as a comfort, as a way to bring forth his promises and his goodness and his blessing in the lives of other people. See, uh, friendships aren't just a nice addendum to your life. They're a necessity to fullness of life. But we stink at them. I mean, we do. I mean, here, I'll speak for as a, as a man. Men stink at friendships for the most part. I mean, they're doing all these studies right now that I read this week about why men have very few real friends. Very few friends that they can call, people that they can trust, people that they can do something with other than to just talk about how the Rockies have lost however many games in a row, right? Very few people. I can remember when I moved from um, Colorado back to California um, in 2007, uh, there were very few people. I, I couldn't think of one friend, and this is sad, this is, but it's true. I couldn't think of one friend that I was sad to leave. Not one. I mean, it was a, dark, it was a tough time in our life, but man, as I look back on it, one of the things that made it so tough was that I had very few people who were close to me. And so one of the reasons that you will hear me continually beating the drum of life groups here is because I want South Fellowship Church to be a friendship factory. And I know that sounds cheesy. I know. I wrote in my notes this week, a friendship factory, and I wrote, that sounds cheesy. But it's, I want it to be true, you guys. 
I want it to be true because I think so many of us die on the vine because we don't have this. We don't have people that we're close with. We don't have people that we can call and talk to. We don't have people that we can journey through life together with. And because we don't, oftentimes we think that God has abandoned us, that he's left us. Because nobody is it, it, nobody's there to come alongside of us and say, come on, let's keep going. Let's keep going. I love the way that um, the great pastor Eugene Peterson puts it when he said this. Friendship is, as, is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It is every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine, it takes what is common in the human experience and it turns it into something holy. Isn't that great? That God uses something ordinary, something normal, like, like two people journeying and walking with each other in life. And he takes it and he makes it something holy, something unique, something special, something that he uses and that you can eventually, as you look back, see his fingerprints all over. You think it's an accident that you are wired as a relational being? I think it's an accident that God created us and wired us to love friendship. I read this study this week in a um, psychology journal that said when people are together, they laugh a lot more than they laugh when they're alone. Like they needed to commission a study to do that. Not a ton of people just sitting in their room just, <laughs> that's hilarious, you know, Not, I hope. Um, those are called insane asylums, but we were created as relational beings. And we're going to see as we open up God's word today that God used a guy named Jonathan in the life of David to both confirm and carry his blessing and his promises to him. Will you open to 1 Samuel chapter 18 as we pick up the story of the life of David there? Um, Just to catch you up on the context, just to get you up in the context a little bit, um, David has just killed Goliath. And, and there's a little bit of um, timing that's uh, not off, but they just chose to write it not in chronological order completely. But we're going to pick it up in verse 56 of chapter 17 as David is sort of walking off the battlefield. And it says this, The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. I mean, so who won the battle for us? Who, who was it that slain the great giant Goliath? And as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David standing holding the Philistine's head. Don't you love it? Like blood all over him. Um, hey, King Saul, how are you? What can I do? What can I do for you other than this? And Saul's like, well, what's your name? And, and so they have this introduction. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Chapter 18, verse 1. As David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And he loved, They became one in spirit, and he loved him as himself. Verse 2. From that day... Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. There's this sort of kindred spirits, David and, Saul, uh, David and Jonathan. 
And God brings them together. And I think, I think Jonathan, who's a few decades older than David at this point in time, um, and, and I guess for all time he was two decades older, but looks at him and I think he sees something in David that he sees in himself. Because if you were to flip back just a few chapters to verse 14, there's, there's another standoff that happens. The Philistines on one tall mountain and Jonathan says, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to attack the Philistines because my God is able to save whether by many or by few. And they didn't have hardly any weapons at all. And Jonathan, said, Jonathan says, I'm taking that hill. I'm taking that hill. And I think Jonathan sees in David what he saw in himself at one point in time, a ferocious faith. A willingness to trust that God is able to save, whether by many or by few, that God was able. And I think God just sort of draws to David Jonathan, and he uses Jonathan. Make no mistake about it. Because I don't think there's any David if there's not a Jonathan. And God uses this connection to help sustain, to carry, to confirm the promises that he has made to David. That he's made to David. And they make this covenant. This kindred, their kindred spirits, and they make this covenant. It says, verse 3, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, I don't know if this is like a pinky square. I don't know. I don't know how this goes down or what this looks like. And I know we don't often do this type of thing today. And I'm not suggesting that South Fellowship Church be one of the only places on the face of the earth where we make covenants of friendship. I'm not suggesting that. But I think what we see in this passage is something that we need to, if we're going to be the type of people that God is inviting us to be, that we need to emulate. So how do we become... A type of place where friendship actually confirms and carries the promises of God. Um, I, I think the first thing we see. Can you guys help me out? I don't know what's going on with that. It's messing up here. First thing we see is that we step into these meaningful friendships when we're willing, with a willingness to make intentional and transcendent commitment. See, what the covenant said, when David and Jonathan made a covenant, what they said is that our friendship is more important than what we get out of this. That we're not just friends because of what we can do for each other, but we're friends through thick and thin, through good and bad. And when the night gets long and it gets dark, he's, Jonathan is saying to David, I will support you, I will be with you, I will journey with you. It's commitment. It's intentionality. It's them saying, this isn't going to happen. A friendship like this that carries and confirms the promises of God is not going to happen if we just sit back and hope it does. And so, so here, as I've thought about my own life and different seasons of life, the reason that there's been times and seasons of my life where I felt like, man, there's not really anybody that knows me other than my wife. I haven't invited anybody else in. Is because there was zero intentionality on my part to do that. And here, let me just let me just give give you a truth that that will hopefully stick with you and, and maybe carry us and change some of the courses of the way that we live and act. But true friendship will not, does not, and cannot happen by accident. And, and that's what Jonathan and David know. That a friendship that's going to confirm and carry the promises of God isn't going to just happen. We're not going to just wake up one day and go, wow, I have really deep, meaningful friendships. Imagine that. How'd that happen? 
No. It happens through intentional commitment where we're willing to say this transcends the circumstances. It won't happen by accident. See, this covenant means the relationship comes first and and the needs come second. That's what covenant is. And Jonathan makes this covenant to David and David in turn makes it to Jonathan. Well, the passage goes on in verse 4. And Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and he gave it to David. And along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, now, Jonathan at this point in time is heir to the throne. His dad is king and he's in line to be king. So David's a huge threat. I mean, the fact that the fact that David's slaying Goliath, the Goliath lies dead and that David, in fact, might be holding his head or just set it off to the side when they made this covenant. He makes him a huge threat because people love him. People are starting to look to him. And, and Jonathan's willing to say, all right, the, the interest of the nation is more important than, than my interest alone. One. One. But the second thing you see is that Jonathan completely, completely sheds himself of everything that it means symbolically for him to be the prince, the heir to the throne. And everything that stood in between Jonathan and David, Jonathan graciously sheds. It's as though he's saying to David, David, I'm going to let you see what very few people are able to see. I'm going to let you see what very few people are invited into. And David, I'm going to let you see the real me. The real me that's not covered in being the next king of Israel. The real me that's not protected from the onslaught of the enemy. David, I'm going to let you see who I really am. In all of my weakness, in all of my frailty, and all of my shortcomings, and he takes off every piece of strength that he has, he lays it down, and he says to David, this is who I really am. No armor, no sword, no prince, just me. Just me. And you see, here's what we learn. Here's what we learn. We go back is that we step into meaningful friendships when we're willing to take risks that are birthed in trust. To take risks that are birthed in trust. See, he literally lets his guard down. He literally lets his guard down. Everything that protected him, he takes off and he lays it at the feet of David. See, there's a necessity in every single friendship that that goes beneath the surface This needs to happen. We would be willing to risk and open ourselves up a little bit to being hurt. That's what Jonathan does. He says, I'm no longer protecting myself. If you want to, you can hurt me. If you want to, you can hurt me. And I think, man, as I think about my life, how unwilling I am to go there the majority of the time with other people was a shocking discovery for me in my time of study this week. Man, I, I like my armor. 
You know, I, I, I want to be, I want to be the pastor that has it together. I mean, not just up here, but like out there too. I mean, I want to wear the cape, right? Not the spandex, but I definitely want the cape, right? And, and I want to, I want to pretend like I'm just, like I'm strong, like there's no areas of weakness, like I'm not angry about anything and I don't fear anything and I don't have any doubts and I want that armor. And what it does is it prevents people from knowing the real me. And my guess is that a lot of you wear armor too. Man, guys, we are so good at it. The armor of success at our job. I mean, in high school, it was a success on the sports field. Now it's probably success at our job or whatever. You can name it. Sometimes fear is our armor. Sometimes disappointment's our armor. But it's an unwillingness to say to other people, I will let you know the real me. And you can trace it all the way back to Genesis 3 in the garden. After Adam and Eve sinned against God, what do they do? They put clothes on and they say, you can't know and see the real me. And we're great at it. We're great at it. So for some of us, if we're honest this morning, there are zero people, spouse included, that really know us. That know the things that scare us, that know the things that terrify us, that know the things that make us angry, that really know us. Minus the armor, minus the sword, minus the title, minus the accomplishments, minus the resume that know the real And Jonathan sheds it all and says to David, I'll let you know me. I'll let you see me. Because I want to walk with you. I want to journey with you. And I don't know that, that Jonathan's thinking, and God might just use me to confirm and carry his promises in your life, but he does. He does. Because if there's not a Jonathan, I don't think there's a David. Second thing he does is he's willing to sacrifice. I mean, they have very few swords as a nation at this time. Remember, the Philistines, they were the makers of all the metal swords. And, and at, at this point in time, the, the Israelites have very few swords. And so when Jonathan lays down his sword and he gives it to David, he's making a sacrifice. And he's saying, I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to give to you and I'm going to sacrifice for you. And friendship is built on that, friends. It's built on that. I read this um, great story uh, earlier this week um, about a about a runner, um, the Kenyans man. His his name is Abel Mutai, and and he was running this race. They were in Spain running a cross country race, and Abel um, was in a huge lead. <laughs> Huge lead. And as you can see, he's getting towards the end in this picture. But right before this, he stops. He stops. He thought he finished the race. He thought he crossed the finish line. And he just stopped right in the middle of this race, well, towards the very end of it. And the guy in second place, his name is Ivan Fernandez Anaya. And he came up behind Abel. And I don't know, I'm thinking as I'm reading this story, he came up behind him, tapped him on the shoulder as he was passing and said, you're not done yet, man. I mean, that's what, that's what I would do. But here's what Ivan does, and his, uh, he doesn't speak the same language, obviously, but he comes up behind him and he pats him on the back and he shows Abel, hey, keep running, you're not at the finish line yet. 
And he lets Abel win this race. It was interesting because his coach was really, um, Ivan's coach was really upset with him. His coach was like, seriously? You did what? And here was Abel's response to his coach. Listen to what he said. He said, even if they had told me that winning would have earned me a place in the Spanish team for the European championships, I wouldn't have done it either. Because today, with the way things are in all circles in soccer, see, soccer isn't, is not of God. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm get, get emails about that. I'm sorry. In soccer and society and politics... Where it seems anything goes, a gesture of honesty goes down very well. And I think this is the picture of David and Jonathan and their friendship. Where there's often times in David's life, and we'll read about some of them in just a moment, where David is close to giving up. And Jonathan, if he wanted to, could have pushed him down and said, All right, great, my time to seize the throne. It's rightfully mine anyway, finally. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. He comes up alongside of him and he walks with them and he journeys with them and he illustrates beautifully for us what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13. The greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Are we willing to, are we willing to sacrifice for people? Are we willing to walk with people in a way that, that costs us something, not just letting them see us and know us, but in a way that actually costs us something? The story goes on in, in verse 5. In verse... Oops. Uh, I'm going to get there in just a second. But in verse 5 it says this. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And when the men who were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs with the tambourine and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And when David heard this, he must have gone, seriously, just leave out the tens. Because this is going to cost me years and years of running. And Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me, only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And for the next years, David is on the run. In the next three chapters, Saul tries to kill David six different times. Six different times. Three times he throws a spear at him. Now, now, I, as I read through it, I'm going, David, I mean, man after God's own heart, yes, but, but sharpest pencil in the box, no. No. I mean, if it's me, after one time of seeing a spear flying through the air at me, pinning my clothes up against the wall, I'm going, anytime Saul gets near the spear, I'm out of here. But David just keeps playing the harp and is in shock when the spear is flying at him. I don't get it. So three times the spear, two times Saul sends him into war. 
One of the times he says, hey, David, I know you like my daughter, Michael, and you can marry her if. Now, this is what we call biblical courting, okay? You can marry her if you bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. Dads, any dads taking notes? All right, you can marry my daughter if. And David says, I'll see your 100 and I'll raise you 100. Here's a bag of 200 Philistine foreskins. What? I haven't seen that in any biblical courting books. None. Anyway, that's probably a whole other message that we hopefully will never hear. And as he comes back from that little escapade, verse 28 of chapter 18, here's the way that Saul responds. It says, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out into battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Verse 1 of chapter 19. And Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to try to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. What has he done? What has he done has benefited you greatly. So, so David not only says, hey, don't kill him, but don't kill him because he's benefited you. you. You are reaping the fruit of David being a great warrior and being a man of faith. Which, by the way, is a risk, a huge risk, because Saul is crazy. He's insane. I mean, he's thrown his spear at David multiple times. He is crazy about trying to kill him. And Jonathan stands up to, to Saul and says, don't do it. He's been good to you. And he took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won great victory for all of Israel. You saw it. You were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to David and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives... David will not be put to death. Well, he spends the next few years trying to kill David. Not exactly what we call a man of his word. But I think what we learn about friendship in this passage, uh, friendship that sustains us um, and, and makes us, is that we step into meaningful friendships when we're willing to protect and promote when it's unpopular. We're willing to protect and promote. See, see, David says, please don't kill him. He gives him an out. He allows him to escape. When, when Saul makes a, a plot to kill David, uh, Saul, or, sorry, Jonathan comes and tells David that Saul's going to kill him. Protect and promote even when it's unpopular. He's not a fair-weathered friend by any stretch of the imagination. I love the way that the book of Proverbs puts it when it says this. A man of many companions may come to ruin. So you can have a lot of Facebook friends and come to ruin. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
that God uses those who protect, who promote, who say, no, I'm, I'm for you. Even if you're not for him, I'm for him. And here's why. In unbelievable ways. I mean, look at the way that Jonathan protects David. He, he talks well of him to his dad and to others. He stands up for him in the midst of adversity. He's for him. Even when it would benefit him to say, you're right, let's kill David. So how do we, because not a lot of us have threats out on our life, right? I mean, not a, not a lot of you are going, hey, I wonder if I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. I need friends around me to tell me if somebody wants to kill me. I mean, not a direct application for us, right? But I think there is a huge application, a few applications for us as we look at the way that Jonathan and David interact. And especially the way that Jonathan stands up to Saul in the face of adversity. So how do we protect in friendships today? I think one of the ways is that we warn friends of impending disaster. You do not want friends that are 100% supportive of you. Let me say, I'll say that again. You do not want friends who are 100% supportive of you. Why? Because sometimes you're an idiot. So am I. And we need friends that are going to say, hey, you're being an idiot. We need friends that are going to step up and say, hey, the direction that you're going in your marriage is going to bring disaster. The fact that you're thinking about leaving, here's how that plays out in five years. We need friends that are going to say, don't do it. Come on, I'm not, I'm not supportive of it. The, the, the way that we're raising our kids, we need friends that are willing to say to us, no, that's not going to end up the way that you want it to end up. I know they don't like it when you discipline them, but let's see the way that plays out over the next 10 years. You don't want friends that are 100% supportive of you. Your marriage, with your kids, and your career. If you only surround yourself with people that go, oh yeah, that's a great call. We will never end up the places that we want to end up. I'm not a huge fan of the show American Idol, but I love the beginning um, where they do the tryouts and they always have people on the tryouts who are absolutely horrible. And they don't know it and everybody else does. And I always think to myself, how sad, not because they're a horrible singer, because, hey, let's face it, many of us are. But it's sad because nobody had the guts and the honesty to say to them, I think you should probably go a different direction. And now all of America thinks you are a moron. And I wonder how many of us would be, would be prevented from walking down a path that God wouldn't have us walk down, a path that robs us of the joy and blessing of following him. How many of us could be prevented of that by a friend that's willing to say, hey, don't go there. And here's why. Here's why. See, see, we warn of impending doom and disaster, but he also helps discern the motives of others. And sometimes we're so close to a situation that we can't see really what's going on. That's the role that, that Jonathan plays in the life of David. And I wonder if that's a role you might play in the life of somebody else. 
Or if somebody else might play that role in your life, if you would invite them in in such a way that they would be willing to build you up and that you would allow them to do that, to really know you in a way where they could honestly speak into your life. You see, here's the thing. People can tell whether you're open to that or not. And if you're open, they will go there. And if you're not, they won't. They won't. So can I encourage you? Would you honestly assess, am I open to people speaking into my life? in a way that would bring life to me, even if I don't like what they hear, or even if I don't want to hear what they say. See, for years now, David goes on the run. And in a moment of of hiding from Saul, David has 600 men with him, but, but I think he's sort of close to giving up. I think he's close to cashing it in. It's been a long journey. It's been a hard journey. And if you flip over to chapter 23, we're going to pick up the story. And the last interaction, the last interaction that Jonathan and David have. And it says this. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziphah, he learned that Saul had come to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh, and he helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. I love that. A guy who has a a clear path to the throne says, I'm willing to be second because I see in you something that God sees in you. And I'm willing to promote you instead of me. And I'm willing to walk and I'm willing to be second and you're going to be first, and you're going to be king, and you're going to do a great job. So don't give up, David. Don't give up. You will be king over Israel. I will be second. Even my father Saul knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. See, I think we step into meaningful friendships um, when we're willing to speak truth that shapes character, and destiny. Speak truth that shapes character and destiny. See, I think this is one of those turning point moments for David and Jonathan. I think this is one of those turning point moments in the life of David where where if there is no Jonathan, I don't think we read about a David. I think this is one of those moments where David's close to giving up. He's been on the run for years and he's tired and he's exhausted. And what does it say that Jonathan does? He comes and he says, find strength in God. See, that's what true friendship's about. It's not about pointing to you. It's not about pointing to the other person. It's about pointing to God. It's about saying God is good. He has not left you. He is in this. Keep going. Keep fighting. Keep moving. Your God is for you. And if he's for you, David, who can be against you? He says, find strength in God. It's what he does. He helps him find strength. I love the way that Paul does this for the church of Philippi. He says this to them at the end of his letter. And my God will meet how many? All. All of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I think as a friend, Paul is walking alongside this struggling church, this church that's gotten beat down, and he says, no, 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 God has not left. He is in this. He is for you, and he will not let you go. 
See, true friendship points back to Jesus. It points back to his goodness, his grace, and his mercy towards us. That's what it does. I think there's way too many accountability groups that focus a whole lot on sin and managing sin and wiping out sin and way too little time focusing on the one who already wiped it out, who already won the victory over it. See, Jonathan doesn't come to David and say, you can do it. Jonathan comes to David and says, find strength in your God. Translation, you can't do it. But he can. But he can. And he speaks truth into his fears. He speaks faith into his fears. It's as though Jonathan comes along at just the right time when David is about to give up and he says, no, 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 don't give up. I have enough faith for both of us in this moment, David. Don't give up. That's what friendship does. I love the way that Proverbs says it when it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It doesn't say the pillows sharpen pillows, friends. I mean, iron sharpens iron. It means that we're formed and shaped in the image of Christ and then we walk with other people and say, come on, you, you can do it too. You can do it too. I love the, this quote by Martin Buber, who's a um, great Jewish philosopher, and he says this, the great thing any person can do for another is confirm the deepest thing in him and in her. To take time, And to have the discernment to see what's most deeply there, most fully that person, and then confirm it by recognizing it and encouraging it. And so Jonathan comes to David and says, you're going to be the king. Keep going. You're going to be the king. Keep going. And God brings him alongside at just that moment to say to him, this is your destiny, David. This is what God created you to be. And Jonathan, even if David's close to cashing in the chips, Jonathan will not let him. Will you be that kind of friend? Will we be this kind of people for each other? See, because here's the truth of the matter, friends, is that the blessings of God are often confirmed and carried by the people of God. And so Jesus, as he's getting ready to end his life, as as he's going to the cross, he says this. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Do you know that this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a friend of God? That he calls you friend? He says, everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. See, he is the ultimate confirmer and carrier of the blessings of God, isn't he? Is he intentional? I mean, let's lay this over what we just said about friendship through Jonathan and David. Is he intentional about making a transcendent commitment to you? That's the gospel. Yes. By his very life, he says, I'll make a commitment to you. One that lasts today, yesterday, tomorrow, and into all of eternity. Is he take a risk on your behalf? No doubt. He sheds himself of heaven's glory and steps into humanity. Absolutely. Does he protect and promote 
come on, you're a, you're a son or daughter of the king. He's your adversary before the throne of God. It says, day and night, he says, Paulson's with me. Whoever, fill your name in the blank. They're with me. I'm for them. I am their defense. My blood covers their sin and covers their shame. He protects. He promotes. And does he shape you through his spirit? Absolutely. Absolutely. And see, herein lies the secret to releasing and being the kind of people confirm and carry the blessings of God in the lives of others as we need to know that first and foremost, God has done that for us. And that when we do, he shapes us into the type of people that do it for others. I pray, as cheesy as it sounds, that we would be a friendship factory. That you would find people here that you can connect with. They can confirm and carry the promises of God when you can't see them and when you're ready to give up. And that God would shape you through the lives of other people, maybe the people that are sitting right next to you today. It's my prayer. It's my hope for us because alone we're doomed. But together, because that's the way God made us, we can make it. Jesus, we love you.